bum bum bottom 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 bum
on May 5th, 2015. So oh. it, it went way longer than I thought it had. I, I assumed that once they're like, I guess the Gullicksons are not coming back. Let's close these doors. Well, let's pour <laughs> one out for Jax. The one place that Lisa and I went to a punk rock concert together and didn't know it. It's Jax with two X's. That's how you know it was dangerous. And I knew, Lisa, that when I asked that question, that you no longer wanted to be a part of the CD underbelly. And I, you know, we haven't talked too much about the Longbow Hunters yet, but I imagine because of your aversion to the CD underbelly and those that celebrate it, you may not have jived with this comic as much as maybe the Justice League of America, Green Lantern, Black Canary comics. I am not an advocate for removing whimsy from things. <laughs> I think that nowadays in particular, having a little whimsy is way more brave than being gritty and seedy. Well, I think this is a good place to jump into the context regarding the longbow hunter. So let's let's put Dinah and Ollie into the waiting room, let them hang out and wait and prepare for their session while we deliver a little context for how the longbow hunters came to be. I just want to say I still have a super warm nostalgic uh, safety pin in jeweled place in my heart for my punk rock days. Like I got to see a lot of really cool shows. I saw the living end. I saw the bouncing souls. I saw uh, rancid a couple of times, went to a bunch of warp tours. I don't want to. I have the t-shirts. I did not want to make it sound like I was robbing you of your authentic punk I have self. an edge. You do have an edge. But I don't. I, <laughs> but I think it was a phase, Lisa. It was super a phase that ended so abruptly. And as you say, you gravitate now more to the Silver Age, Green Arrow aesthetic than Mike Grell's hard 80s aesthetic. I'm pretty sure that Mike Grell's version of Oliver Queen also doesn't go to punk rock shows anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, like, I, think, I think Mike Grell's uh, Green Arrow is very much the type of character that would hang out with Charles Bronson from Death Wish and that is a right-wing, ultra-conservative, dirty, hairy, nightmare kind of character. And that's why I kind of like him. Okay, now I'm ready to get into it. Okay, let's do this. Uh, the Longbow Hunters. All right, so some consider it the greatest Green Arrow story, and others consider it grimdark, misogynistic drivel. Where do we fall? Uh, we're not telling yet, but maybe you can gather some hints on our feelings <laughs> regarding the Longbow Hunters. It's a three-issue prestige format series. It's got a spine, you guys. Yeah, yeah it's not a floppy, it's a stiffy. <laughs> uh, written and illustrated by Mike Grell and published between August and October of of 1987. And gasp, it's one of the first mature readers comics of the 1980s. Naughty words, lots of blood, and no nipples, but a lot of side boob. No nipples? There's nipples in this book. Lisa, there are no nipples in this book. Hold on a second. No, it's all obscured by shadow or hair. Okay, so or I'm they're holding, not drawn. I'm holding book one. Yeah. Here we are, page 24. Yeah. What do you call that? Those aren't nipples. That's hair obscuring nip. Well, okay. I mean, like, 
you can see some it's of like the areola. It's like a three quarters moon. Yeah, yeah. It's a three quarters moon of areola. Like I'm just it's it's not pornographic. It's not Playboy quality. This is like Maxim nipples. <laughs> okay, well you have to give me that that is more than side boob. That uh, is it's all a, around boob. It's a little more than side boob. I will give you that. But Mike Grell, <laughs> Lisa, graduated from the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay to avoid the draft or at least serving in the army during the Vietnam War, Grell enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and did a brief stint as an illustrator in Saigon. Ooh, interesting. I don't have much info on that time in his life, but I need to know more about that for sure. And if you read Mike Gold's intro into the Longbow Hunter's graphic novel, he alludes to Grell doing some covert work in Vietnam. Very curious. Uh, after that, he enrolled in the Chicago Academy of Fine Art and got his first comics work as an assistant to Dale Messick on the Brenda Starr newspaper strip in 1972. A year later, Grell moves to New York City and starts working for DC Comics. He did a little of everything at first, doing time on Aquaman, The Phantom Stranger, and then along with Elliot S. Magan, he launched the Batman Family series, which we covered on our first Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon episode. And we loved it. But after Neil Adams left Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Grell did a run on that series. But it was with his DC Comics creation, The Warlord, where Grell took off as somebody to obsess over. And if you have not read The Warlord, you got to check that out. It's, uh, it's a lot, Lisa. It's a lot, but it's a lot of fun. Also, how much nipple do you get to see? No nipple, I'm afraid. Uh, he left DC for a bit. He worked on Tarzan and developed two creator-owned titles, John Sable Freelance and Star Slayer. Those comics are also incredibly rad and worth seeking out. I'm just a big grell head. Uh, but he returns to DC in 1987 with the Longbow Hunters, and he immediately tries to butch up the green arrow. He redesigns the costume, ditches the trick arrows, and replaces the colorful spandex villains with mobsters, street gangs, serial killers, and terrorists. The Longbow Hunters feels very much like a response to The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and the adultification of comics that was happening. This era always feels a little defensive to me, like the artists and readers were going, see, this is real, no kid stuff stuff. But it's kind of hilarious when discussing Green Arrow, right? Because as we discussed on the last episode, Green Arrow began as a Robin Hood copy of Batman. He was a purposeful mimic. Batman had a Batmobile. Green Arrow had an Arrow car. For a long time, before Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams came along and radically altered Oliver Queen's personality, making him a social justice warrior, the character was just a watered-down version of Bruce Wayne. O'Neill and Adams made him his own unique character, and then Mike Grell says, that character is too silly, and he's a leftist. I don't like him as a leftist. Let's make him a hard right character. And that's what the Longbow Hunters feels like. It feels like a middle finger from Mike Grell to the SJW version of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' Oliver Queen. And I can totally understand why, if you liked that version, you would reject this version. But I feel like I can see a through line from the Neil Adams mm. version to the Grell version, because even Mr. Rogers, towards the end of his career, looked back and said, like, I did all of this, I put all of my effort into spreading this message of, 
love and understanding and friendship and, and seeing other people. But now it's post 9-11 and nothing has really changed mm. all of that much. And that that gave him like some frustration where I feel like with Green Arrow, he ended each adventure with this moralization of if we just realize the damage that we're doing, we can reverse some of what we've been doing. And apparently nobody's been listening. Mm-hmm. And so I can feel... I understand his being a little bit disillusioned by the this point in his career. Yeah, yeah, and he is having a crisis in the Longbow Hunters, and the personality that was established in the Justice League of America comics by Denny O'Neill is still evident even in this Mike Grell version, especially as how it relates to Dinah Lance. But again, it is somewhat funny when you consider that Green Arrow started as a Batman copy, a doppelganger. And then in 1986, The Dark Knight Returns comes out from Frank Miller, and it's this ultra-serious, grimdark take on the character, this very 80s response to Reagan's America. And then, once again, Green Arrow copies that aesthetic somewhat of Batman's world and goes grimdark as well. So they're always chasing each other. But instead of this time being a watered-down version of Bruce Wayne, it's just straight bourbon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. This is the bourbon version of Green Arrow. And guess what? Chicken butt. The Longbow Hunters proved to be incredibly popular. DC then hired Grell to write and sometimes illustrate the first ever Green Arrow solo series, and it ran for 80 issues. Lisa, can you believe that before the Longbow Hunters, there was not a solo Green Arrow comic? The character's been around since 1941, but he didn't get his own book until 1987? I do find that hard to believe. That's wild. I just assume if they've been around for a while, they've had a solo series. Yeah. But, I mean, we're building teams like the Justice League. It would take... A lot of pages to cover all of those heroes, I guess. Uh, well, well, I mean, even if you go and you look at how the MCU built its Avengers, you know, and the, the time it took to gather Iron Man, the Hulk, Thor, and Captain America, and then DC with their films is like, we don't, we, we can't mess with all that world building. We got to go to Justice League now. It betrays my sensibilities. Yeah, but I also now appreciate what the DCEU did because they were just staying on model with what they did in the 60s and their comics. And all of this is to say that if you're looking to understand the history of Green Arrow and Black Canary, you have to come to the Longbow Hunters eventually. Uh, yes, Canary gets sidelined early on, and we've got a lot to say about that, but it's just not a comic you can skip over, in my opinion. And for those trying to keep track of which Dinah we're covering this week, The Longbow Hunters came out in 1987, a year after Crisis of Infinite Earths concluded, so technically this Dinah is not the same Dinah as the one we covered in Denny O'Neill's Justice League of America. This is Dinah Drake's daughter, Dinah Lance, but post-crisis. Ollie did not have a romance with Dinah Drake, just this one. Go back to the last episode to try to figure out why that makes sense. (laughs) Uh, But before we can get into this dark, seedy underbelly of Seattle, we got to talk about our love expert and how we're approaching Dinah and Ollie's relationship this week. Lisa, take it away. Yes, our love expert for Dinah Lance and Oliver Queen is Megan Lundgren, Lumpt. 
<laughs> LMFNT, licensed Oops. marriage and family therapist, through her book, The Relationship Book for New Couples, Proven Strategies to Nurture Your Connection and Build a Long-Lasting Bond, published in May 2021 from Rockridge Press. Lumpt sounds delicious. Like, mm. ugh, it was cold outside. Now I'm going to treat myself to a steaming bowl of Lumpt. Uh, I don't think I, I disagree. I want none of that bowl. Megan Lundgren is the director and has been for the last decade of Relationships for Better, a private therapy practice based in Monterovia, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. The relationship book for new couples is part informational, but mostly a workbook filled with quizzes, questionnaires, and exercises intended for couples who are either deepening their level of commitment by getting engaged, moving in together, etc., or couples looking to reassert their commitment as they prepare to renew their vows or reach another life milestone. The intention of this book, outlined in the introduction, is to provide evidence-based therapeutic practices to help a couple build essential relationship skills. I think this is perfect for Dinah and Ollie and Longbow Hunters because they've just moved to Seattle. Yep. They're moving into their Seattle castle. Yeah, it's a big step. And I think this is a great time to reassess and deepen their relationship. Well, I hope I, I hope it deepens. I don't know. It definitely darkens. It darkens. Last episode, we talked about how we could help Dinah and Ollie foster their individual identities and think about their relationship as a third separate identity that is their us-ness. For this episode, we're skipping over chapter two, where we're coming from, which deals with families of origin and attachment theory, because considering Dinah's baffling past, <laughs> it just, it seems like a hot mess to me. Sure, yeah. I did not uh, pack my 10-foot pole in my quiver today, <laughs> so I'm just not going to touch it. We're going directly to chapter three, our beliefs and values. We've mentioned already that Oliver Queen is a very values-forward person. He loves to top off his adventures with a stroll and sweeping moralization, while Dinah likes to stay more in the small picture. Where are we now, and what do we do next? According to Lundgren, couples thrive when they share values. Quote, values are what you believe is important and meaningful in life, creating the foundation of how you intend to live. Your values can reflect your personal beliefs, your relational beliefs, which she defines as like your culture and family of origin, your spirituality, and your moral code. Lundgren includes an activity for a couple to discuss their values. She has a list of 43 one-word values like cooperation, growth, frugalness, trust, and she says each member of the couple separately choose five of the values. So I gave Brad a little homework. Yes, you did. And we're going to do this activity together. All right. Should I share the five values that I selected from the list first or yeah. you? You go first. Uh, so my five values are compassion, growth, kindness, love, and patience. And the last one, patience, I'm thinking specifically about, you know, my patience. I value my patience. <laughs> Not necessarily like I need patience from others. It's like a practice that I am currently working on, as our listeners should know. This should make a super boring conversation because uh, we share four values. Nice. <laughs> so my five values are compassion, 
gratitude, growth, kindness, and love. Ah, not patience. And you went with gratitude. Okay. You didn't have gratitude? No. Look, there were a lot of good values on that list, but I was picking the five that are speaking to me in the moment. And I, like, like I said, I think patience is something that I am uh, more interested in right now than I would be gratitude. And I think that I am always trying to foster more gratitude in my life because I feel like sometimes I can take things for granted and I just want to embrace more of the present. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised that we share love, kindness, and compassion. Uh, you know, like those are like, I would hope that most people would value those values, would seek those values. Uh, of course, I'm sure most people don't, or a lot of people don't. But I think that's what values, like, we we presume that because we're us, everyone should have the same values as us. Yeah. We picked them because we think they're the best, but... Uh for other people, that might not necessarily be so. And the value of growth is one that we've been talking a lot about lately. Uh, giving space, leaving space for change and the possibility of becoming our better selves. And I notice in myself that when I feel like I'm growing stagnant, like I'm not making progress. Yeah, you feel low. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that directly impacts my joy. Yeah, and, and we've been talking about how Star Trek uh, exemplifies a growth mindset. Mm. And when I watch that show or those movies, I am uh, committing to an exercise in growth and wanting to uh, expand and evolve. I think because of this podcast, Brad and I are constantly reassessing and discussing our values. That's true. And But I think for other couples like Ollie and Dinah, the values like don't come up. Well, well Ollie brings his up all of the time, but Dinah plays hers more close to the chess. But I do think that since we've started this podcast and started talking about our values, uh, it has allowed us to uh, nip some arguments in the bud before they occur. So if you are developing your values on your own and not discussing them with your partner, suddenly so you can be on two separate tracks, right? And that can cause conflict. Yeah, by having an open like growing list of values, we have something to refer back to when we're in disagreement. We yeah. go, okay, well, what best, like one uh, word that I think that was glaringly absent from Lundgren's list is empathy. Mm. But that is, I think, our core shared value. And we refer back to it often. What is the position of most empathy in this disagreement. I think you can fold empathy into compassion. Mm -hmm. Those are like little siblings. If you're playing along at home and you and your partner have picked your five chosen values from just, you can pick yours from the air. You don't need a list of, an alphabetical list of words. Is there a list available online? Oh, I guess I could, like I just copied and pasted them out of Lundgren's book into a text to you. I suppose that I could put that in a text to the world. Well, why don't like I make like a little article about the values on comicbookcouplescounseling.com and our listeners can go there and find the values and decide which values work for them. Ooh, I love that. And then we could have like 
a shared list of values for our podcast community. I love yeah, that. Yeah, okay. So uh, listeners, hopefully there's a link in the show notes. You can click on it and find the article on comicbookcouplescounseling.com. I love that. Okay, so now you definitely have your five values and so does your partner. So Lundgren includes some discussion questions to aid in your conversation. What are the similarities and differences? What are the ways your relationship embodies your chosen values? Which are your personal values versus your shared values? And what are the morals or values you want to keep central to your relationship? Even if a couple's values don't align perfectly, discussions about values breed intimacy and build empathy. If there are fundamental differences in key values, however, it may affect your future commitment and Lundgren does recommend seeking therapy in some cases. Megan Lundgren also recommends that couples establish their own rituals, traditions, and customs. She quotes one of our previous love experts, Dr. John Gottman, that couples should focus on creating an inner life together, a culture rich with symbols and rituals, and an appreciation of your roles and goals that link you, that lead you to understand what it means to be a part of the family you have become. Traditions and customs bring a sense of belonging and purpose. Lundgren recommends that new relationships start by including your partner in your cultural and familial traditions and then developing some of your own. I include this part of the chapter because I feel like in The Longbow Hunters, Oliver is longing for some trappings of traditional life and he doesn't recognize and acknowledge the traditions that he and Dinah have established mm, over the years. Yeah. Just like it's important to have a shared identity in a relationship, it's important to usness that a relationship have a shared foundation of values and beliefs. Lundgren includes as the final activity of this chapter that a couple create a mission statement for the relationship. How does the partnership improve their lives, their community, and the world at large? I feel like for us, our podcast is yes. like our mission statement. Absolutely. I find it curious that in The Longbow Hunters, despite they're both living together and both being vigilantes, we don't see them partnering up really. Right. I know that it's not required just because you and your partners are both dentists or whatever. <laughs> it doesn't mean you'll be sticking your hands into the same mouth all of the times. But I think that there may be an unspoken reason relating perhaps to values that Dinah avoids a team-up situation. While we have Oliver and Dinah in session, I'd like to codify some of their values so that we can compare and contrast what they stand for as individuals in hopes that we can find some moral common ground on which they can build a more stable foundation. And I'd also like to acknowledge some of the traditions and rituals they already have as a couple so that Ollie, in particular, gets a more tangible sense of their shared history. Mm, yeah, but before we can do that, Lisa, we gotta do some words of affirmation. No, 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 affirmations. So for first time listeners, the words of affirmation are a way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these ourselves and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. These particular affirmations come from the cartoonist Josh Meekouch at Pants on Twitter, and his book, Conquer the Day, A Book of Affirmations. Head to our Twitter account, guys. Look at the art that accompanies these little affirmations. I am in love. Yes, these make great meditations. And just because we are dedicating these meditations to our new three Patreon subscribers, doesn't mean that the 
rest of you can't take advantage of them as well. Uh, write them down, put them up on your mirror, look at them every day. That's what we do. We find them very helpful. So let's take a moment to take a deep breath and quiet our minds for some words of affirmation. Dan Fleming. You allow yourself to make bad art. You make room in yourself for imperfection. Stumbling Jedi. You forgive yourself for past mistakes. You bathe yourself in a river of compassion. Brendan McGowan. Your gratitude list grows longer every day. (sighs) Yeah, there we go. I really like those affirmations. I've ordered the book. I'm excited to get them. I love how the art interprets the affirmations. And I hope that uh, you folks can get some solace from these little words uh, as much as we do. We understand that it's not in everyone's budget to take part in our Patreon. We super appreciate those that do. If you would like to show us affirmation in other ways, we include a list of ways you can fill our love tanks and support the podcast for free. You can find them at the end of the show or in our show notes, Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews. We will read them on the air. But now it is time to get Dinah and Ollie into session to bring them onto our couch to bring in Dr. Megan Lundgren and have a conversation, a discussion about their relationship as seen through The Longbow Hunters, issues one through three. And as we've already stated, these three comics were published by DC between August and October of 1987. They're written and illustrated by Mike Grell, colored by Julia Lackament, and lettered by Ken Bruzenak. Uh, The basic plot comes courtesy of Goodreads. Oliver Queen gives up his trick arrows and settles down in Seattle with Dinah Lance, but Ollie's world collides with one of unspeakable violence involving the beautiful and mysterious archer known as Shadow. I do appreciate that they put the unspeakable violence right there into the description as a word of warning for any reader coming in. And when you turn the pages of the first issue and you meet Seattle, the seedy underbelly Seattle, and you discover this slasher that is going through the alleys and killing women, you're either in or out as a reader. Like you're going to continue or you're going to be like, no, thanks. Not for me. They've made it abundantly clear that this is not your father's green arrow. Right. I have like a mental image of like a little boy going in, holding the hand of his papa (laughs) and pulling this off of the shelf and going, oh, no. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I don't I don't know if the little boy would be going, oh, no, the little boy would be my age. So I would have been a little boy picking up this comic and I would have been going, oh, yeah, (laughs) it would be my dad going like. Uh, this looks a little gratuitous. That is your dad. Yeah, that is my dad. And he would have been right. But gratuitous sometimes has a point. And Mike Grell is going for a vibe here. And he is, you know, riding the wave that Frank Miller and Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons created. So, like, I don't know, like, for the era, I think if you recognize the era that this comic is coming out in and just set that aside... I think you'll be fine. But some people won't be able to set it aside. And I mean, there are elements of this comic that we won't be able to set aside either. But 
one, this comic is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. These first yes. few pages, when you look at it, they don't look like any other comic that's coming out at this point in time. The colors, you know, they're painted. You know, this is painted artwork. It's so rich. There's so much texture to it. So if you're not disgusted by the immediate violence and the sexuality, sexuality, the misogyny, and also like the insane purple prose of Michael Grail's captions, uh, I think you can also go like, whoa, this comic is beautiful. He certainly sets a tone. Yeah. And he opens the comic book with this extended metaphor about how yes. the concrete jungle is made of hunters and gatherers and predator and prey. And he carries this metaphor throughout all three of these books to mixed effect, I would say, because uh, he tries to, to layer metaphor upon metaphor. So sometimes the hunters are like, you know, like, I'm like a lion. And yeah. sometimes the hunters are like, I'm literally like a, a man, a human a hunter, like a yeah. hunter-gatherer community kind yeah. of hunter. Yeah. Um, but he's going for something deep and literary and, and a, thick. It's mm -hmm. layered thick. And it's like dismissive of the other iterations that came before it. Yeah, which is funny because in Grell trying to chase realism as he perceives it, he's creating another hyperbolic level. Like this doesn't feel real. It just feels gritty. And it does feel like, as you say, dismissive of the older versions of that character. And you can get mad about that or you can lean into Grell world. Sure, Brad, I'll lean in. Am I ready to buy real estate? I, I'm just not sure quite yet. Okay. I'd like to jump right to the first scene with Dinah and Ollie. They are uh, gluing up newspaper mm -hmm. clippings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of the actual two serial killers, because there's the slasher. There is also a Robin Hood killer who's mm -hmm. been going around uh, slinging arrows at middle-aged men. Using a black arrow, not a green arrow. No confusion there. That's right. Nobody is going like, maybe this Oliver Queen who just moved to town <laughs> and perhaps has rich guy activities he does, such as archery. But they're taking the clippings and they're do it, making one of their like crime things. I, I imagine like the next step would be to bring out the yarn. But instead of yeah. doing like using the wall, they're doing it directly to the windows, does it, which doesn't <laughs> which doesn't look psycho or suspicious at all. I mean, yeah. So they're like they're blocking any kind of light from coming into their apartment with these serial killer clippings, which is I think the activity of a serial killer. But well, you know, it's Grell World. This is how he operates. He is very Charlie Day. I like the yarn reference, Lisa. While they're doing that, though, Oliver goes, hey, pass me the classifieds because I need a job, one that I can hold for a change. And Dinah goes like, honestly, Oliver, if you give yourself half a chance, that's part of what this move is all about. Mm -hmm. So they're about to get into like a serious conversation about the situation they're in. But then something very X-Men happens. A woman bursts through the window and she's apparently on something. And again, this isn't like a restaurant window. They're not like in the heart of Seattle. This is Ollie's home, right? This is the window that they were pasting serial killer clippings upon. So this is showing that Seattle is in a real rough shape where drugs are literally throwing themselves <laughs> into your apartment. In the bright daylight, it looks like the middle of the day. But I think that the different ways that they respond to this circumstance is really indicative 
of what I think one of their conflicts is. So Dinah immediately goes to help the woman. Oliver goes to check to call the ambulance. And while they're on the phone, Oliver goes through her handbag to see what she's on. It seems to be crack. Yes. When the ambulance comes, Dinah asks to accompany the woman in the ambulance. So she's immediately fully involved, creating a relationship with this stranger to really get in there and help her. And what Oliver chooses to do is to um, interfere with the police officer who is standing there questioning her friends and moralizing at them. Like, those friends don't know nothing. This was bad crack and things are out of control and there's nothing anyone can do. And it's like, Oliver, this is not your job. Let the police officer do his job. Yeah, and for as much uh, evolving of the character that Mike Grell does, this moralizing is straight Denny O'Neill, Green Lantern, Green Arrow era. But instead of talking to himself and talking to Black Canary, he's now interfering with an investigation. (laughs) Sure. And further traumatizing these young people who just saw their friend go through a window. He does not care about her friends at all because he chastises them as well, saying like, they're not going to tell you anything anyway, officer, because they saw nothing. They don't care. Young people think they're invincible. Right. And what I love about this transition is like, so that scene ends and then the next page is Dinah returning from the hospital. And she's like, this place looks nice. So while she was at the hospital, Ollie was just like sweeping up all the glass from the from the chaos. He's a fixer. I think that it's just that contrast between Oliver and Dinah. Like Dinah is an all-in person. She doesn't mm. talk about it. She doesn't want to moralize about it. She wants to- Do something. And he's more like- Oh, I've had I've come to this conclusion in my head and my job is done here. Yeah, and I want to share it with the world. I told these people off. I think your comment about buying in is very interesting. Uh, if you look at the t-shirt that Dinah is wearing, it says Seattle Slugfest. And apparently the Seattle Slugfest is a thing. Yeah, it's to celebrate the native banana slug. I love that. And so like that's a, a detail because Mike Grell was living in Seattle at the time. So he's going to put in the Seattle Slugfest. And Dinah just moved there too. So to me, it shows like she has fully also bought into Seattle yeah. where it seems to me that Oliver is trying to recreate this place that still feels like... <laughs> Sherwood Forest, right? not is, really embracing his new surroundings. Which we have to talk about this place that he has moved into, his Sherwood Forest, is a castle. And how does he afford that? I'm not sure. He's no longer a millionaire at this time, but he has a millionaire's apartment. It's a house, Brad. It's like a full castle with turrets and stuff. Yeah, but he's got to be renting that thing. He says that, oh, I need a job, I need money, but like, we don't know what his assets are right now. Because a millionaire losing all of his money (laughs) probably means something different to him than it would to us. Correct. Yeah, you're right. Dinah has returned from the hospital, and Oliver asks how the patient is doing. And Dinah's like, her name is Rita. She's 17. She's being transferred to a detox center. But I have a major lead on the cocaine trade in the Pacific Northwest from going on this hospital trip, and I really want to 
explore that. And Oliver offers to help, and Dinah declines. And I want to point to this moment because I feel like the way that Oliver thinks of her going like, oh, clearly she wants to do this for herself, for her own personal sense of satisfaction because, you know, I'm the green arrow and she doesn't need my shadow over everything that she does. But I think that maybe his reaction to Rita bursting through the window is why she might not want Green Arrow involved because she wants to uh, go undercover perhaps, be a little bit quieter, but to bring Green Arrow along is to bring a certain amount of distraction and ruckus. And, And I think that he would be a distraction and deter from what she's actually trying to do. Well, I would like this comic to incorporate more of Dinah Lance's investigation process, because I think when you look at these two characters in this first issue, it's clear that they value things differently. Uh, I agree that Green Arrow is more of a bull in a china shop. Like he lands in Seattle and he begins to tear through it immediately. And Dinah is more about going undercover, investigating, trying to uh, change things from within. There's more deception to her process or maybe not deception, but sneakery. Like there's subtlety to her actions that Green Arrow does not possess. But she doesn't say outright, allow me to do this part of the process. I'll bring you in later. Or, hey, let's spitball about this. She just says, I need to do this on my own. And I think that it is because she sees Green Arrow as an unpredictable element. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't need that kind of chaos thrown into her process. Yeah, like from the beginning of the first issue, a division is occurring between this couple. There is certainly some compartmentalization happening. Yeah, and I think that Ollie sees himself as the man, you know, he is trying to steer this ship. And, he has ideas. And Dinah wanting to do this investigation on her own is like, oh, that's cute. She's doing like this little women's lib thing. Right, right. So when she comes back, he wants to show her, well, look what I've done with this place. I've really built it to be a fortress of solitude for the two of us. Let me take you on a tour. This is your place. This is my place. He's divided the castle into sections. Yeah, she has a floor he's calling Sherwood Florist. And it's all covered in flowers and pink and nice things. And then he has a floor that's like, you know, manly and unfinished where there's a lot of musk, I imagine. (laughs) And then he takes her to the bedroom and he says, well, this is ours. So to me, I feel like it typifies the relationship in that like, their their togetherness is something that is only the most intimate times, mm. like the times when we're asleep, the times when we're making love. Mm-hmm. That's when we're together. For the rest of our life, we're we're living on separate floors. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's an interesting headspace to go into the next two conversations. Yeah, so they follow the the tour up with ordering Chinese food. And um, he goes to hang a painting of Robin Hood. Yeah. And Dinah goes like, you have always loved this painting. And he goes, it's like, it's less about the painting and more of what it stands for. 
And I feel like this speaks to our conversation about like, what are the symbols of their life? What are the rituals? Like for him, Robin Hood is this symbol of an ideal that he holds very personally and he isn't really including Dinah in that. Yeah, I mean, it is a lone figure of an Errol Flynn type Robin Hood. That's how he sees himself. He sees himself as lone plus with like a little plus sign of a lady. Like he's not putting up a painting of Robin Hood and Marianne, right? Marianne's nowhere to be seen. She's got her own floor to occupy in the <laughs> castle. And we're not saying that couples can't have their own separate things. Uh, you know, you need your own space. But they have nothing with that amount of personality and meaning and symbolism within their home together that that, that represents their usness. Yeah, and so he hangs this painting and he goes through his origin story once more, the tale of the island. And he, he lays it all out for Dinah as a way of like, this is who I am. This is who I always will be. Please understand me. This origin story is really in two parts. We have the part about Howard Hill, and then we have the time in the island. So Howard Hill was uh, one of the trick shooters for the Robin Hood films. And Ollie always admired how he used to use an old-fashioned longbow with no gimmicks. Howard Hill had this thing about like, I'm not good enough to shoot with, you know, a special bow or trick arrows. I'd much I'd much rather just stick to the basic. Ollie feels like, oh, I've gone towards this gimmick side. And I feel like because of that, I've lost my edge. I've lost like what makes me essentially an archer. When he's retelling his island origin story to Dinah, what he is doing is demystifying the legend that DC Comics had presented before this issue. And that is, he was just a guy trapped on an island. He had to kill to survive. He had to kill animals. He had to eat their flesh. And he liked killing a little too much, which is why he does not kill today. And the only heroism he committed on that island was that he took down some marijuana croppers, not some big, bad mafia organization, not terrorists, just some dudes growing some weed. It seems to me, though, that these two parts of his origin story are in contradiction because the reason the Green Arrow moved to gimmicky trick arrows is because he didn't want, right. he wanted some non-fatal weapons. Yeah, he was a great archer, but he didn't want to kill people. Yeah, to fight crime. And so now he's saying like, those gimmicks made me lose my edge. I was no longer a true archer because I was using, I was taking advantage of the technology. But also, I still don't want to kill people. Well, so, like, what you see in this first issue of The Longbow Hunters is an Oliver Queen in total conflict with himself. He wants to be in a relationship with Dinah. He wants to keep them separate. He doesn't want to kill people, but he doesn't want to use his trick arrows anymore. Like, he is tearing apart at the seams. He's having something of a midlife crisis. Yes. Because... Roy was the kid that he saved from a heroin addiction. Speedy, his ward. And now Roy has started a family of his own. And I feel like 
Ollie doesn't see progress in his life. He feels like things aren't changing for him. He's still the guy in green. So he's suddenly a grandfather because Roy has had a kid and that was thrown upon him. So that was something that he did not have control of and it's freaking him out. But while he was totally lost in his own reminiscence and telling this super raw and vulnerable origin to Dinah, he doesn't even notice that she has totally left the room and he's just standing there talking to himself. But when she returns, she is fully decked out in her black canary regalia and she wants to reenact those good old days with her. So she's using this costume as a symbol of their shared history. Right. And it's worth noting, it's not just the costume she has put her wig on. Which the kind of wig that she's wearing is an ordeal because you can totally see her hairline, which means that she glued it down, she blended the edges. So who knows at what point she was like, okay, he's (laughs) doing his origin story thing again. I'm going to go into the other room and surprise him with this. But I think that it hurts her for him to use the past to point to the present and say that the present is somehow inferior or not good. Because she's content and he is not. I think she finds his retelling of his origin kind of annoying and she uses sex to end that conversation. Uh, Sad for her though, because that conversation Uh, Who knows how long their lovemaking lasts? I hope it's (laughs) hours. But the moment the lovemaking ceases, Ollie's right back to confronting where he is in the present. Yeah, he, post-coital, he goes like, hey, we we really should get married. I want to get married. And she goes like, and ruin this perfect thing that we have? And he goes back into, oh, you know, Roy, he is having kids. His life is evolving. I want children. And whoa, that'll stop a sexy day. It's because where they are now, he doesn't feel like a family. He feels like in order to have that next level of commitment, they need to have a ceremony. They need to have a child. And she, she, so he feels like there's something missing and she doesn't feel that there's anything missing. And she, and she says like, Oliver, I don't want children because I'm doing exactly what I feel like I'm called to do. I'm the black canary. I'm fighting crime. I saved Rita's life today. Right. And we, we both are vigilantes. We're both doing something incredibly dangerous, but we feel passionate about. And I would never ask you to to put down the longbow. You can't ask me to put down my fishnets, I guess. Well, I mean, she also says that we wouldn't be having children. We would be making orphans. Yeah, we would get killed. We are eventually going to get killed. Yeah, and so they're just on totally different paths. They're on totally different paths, thinking that they're holding hands with each other. But in fact, they're both holding hands with the person that they think that they're with because they don't, I guess they don't have conversations like this all the time. The next scene, Dinah and Ollie are separate again and we see Oliver working in his study and his trash can is full of old trick arrows. 
And Dinah arrives and she gives Oliver an early birthday present because she feels like, oh, I'm gonna be following this coke lead. I might not actually be here for your birthday. And he opens the box and it's a green jacket that's modeled after the jacket in the Robin Hood painting. And she says like, well, you're going to need a good jacket for the Seattle weather. Right. And so I think that this is actually a really beautiful gift because it respects the symbolism of the Robin Hood painting, but still says, we're gonna be in Seattle for a while. So it's like go marrying the past to the present. Yeah, and saying like, I, I care for your comfort. You need sleeves, you need a hood. It rains all the time here. But she's also backing out of yet another ritual and tradition. We're not going to be together for your birthday because I have something more important than you to do. Right. So the rest of this issue involves Ollie investigating the Black Arrow murders and going into the world where these prostitutes are being murdered. And he starts to discover that... Uh, this killer has ties to the military and there might be like a conspiracy involved around these slashings. He finds the killer's den and he finds some clippings himself. See, they both like keeping clippings mm -hmm. of their work. And this guy was a former tunnel rat. But the Black Arrow killings are targeting businessmen, guys in suits. And these guys are the Tunnel Rat's former CIA masters. So he has tied the arrow murders and the slashings together and goes to the police with his information. Yes, Green Arrow goes to Lieutenant Cameron going like, hey, arrow killings, I am an archer. Don't you want to take advantage of my broody expertise? And Lieutenant Cameron is like, actually, I'm a little concerned that you're going to interfere. But they do actually end up spitballing about Budry, who is the slasher and how he might relate and they could be connected. And despite his gruff ways, Green Arrow does manage to give the cops somewhat of a lead, but he's being super smug about it. So like if he's trying to, you know, foster a spirit of cooperation, yeah. he's utterly failing. Yeah, and the cops right, you know, he is going to interfere and he continues to do so for the rest of the series. The next scene, Green Arrow stops a purse snatcher. Oh yeah. By breaking his fingers and one of the, and it's a group of punks. And one of the punks goes like, you're supposed to be a, like a good guy. You're not like a finger breaker guy. And he's like, well, you heard wrong. I'm so in I think, Seattle, baby. <laughs> I think this is another opportunity he's taking to establish like, I'm not your papa's green arrow anymore. I do love after he makes that statement to the punk who is screaming in pain that he does the Lindy hop with these two elderly women who almost had their purses snatched because in Seattle they're on the sidewalks are like all the dance moves for the Lindy hop. So in the background, like the punks are slowly moving away and there's a joyous Green Lantern just having the time of his life with these two little ladies. Of course, he eventually has to go home back to Sherwood Forest and he finds this note from Dinah and Dinah. It's not a dear John. 
but it's effectively a Dear John for her time in this comic book because she's got a lead on the cocaine dealers at the waterfront. She's going to investigate. She's got to go undercover and she's going to do this alone without you. So you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. We'll talk later. And of course, this infects Ollie's brain. He can't sleep. And we have some really wonderful panels of Ollie just wandering his apartment like that Quentin Tarantino meme, just staring at the fridge, staring out the window. And he's just so lost and sad at this point. I think that the key phrase in her note is like, please understand I have to do this. Mm. So I feel like that's an indication that he has not been entirely understanding in the past. Yeah, he's so caught up in his own stuff. He's he's listening to himself and he's talking a lot, but he's not listening to Dinah. So he decides to go out and do some investigating. And while he was investigating the slasher murders and the Robin Hood killer, it happened to overlap with her investigation right. and he sees her undercover entering a diner or I think it's a bar actually with this guy and he goes like, oh great, now she's going to think I'm checking up on her and cramping <laughs> her style, which I kind of am. <laughs> totally. So he scrams and goes back to his side of the investigation and as he's tracking these CIA suits, he comes across the Black Arrow killer, Shadow. And I do think if we were to ever cover Green Arrow again on this podcast, we could do a whole series about Ollie's relationship with Shadow because after the Longbow Hunters, uh, she becomes a major part of Mike Grell's series. And for a while, she's the romantic partner to Ollie after, spoilers, Dinah and Oliver split up. But they're not getting along so well in this particular no. scene. She puts Oliver Queen to shame. Yes. When they meet on the roof, he goes to stop her. She manages to shoot her arrow at her target, then shoot a second arrow that cuts the, the string on Ollie's bow, completely emasculating him. And he was not able to stop that murder from happening. So in the very next scene, we see him in his clawfoot tub, <laughs> nursing his wounds, his hurt ego, and going like, I wonder if Robin Hood had days like this. Yeah, no, I don't think he did, Lisa. Uh, and he doesn't have much time to nurse his wounds because he's watching TV uh, while soaking in the tub. And he sees on the news that the guy that Dinah was with at the bar, his body has been found near in the, a dumpster in yeah. a dumpster near the waterfront. And he goes, oh, no, Dinah's in trouble. So he jumps out. He goes on his investigation. Uh, he runs across a couple bodies. Shadow has beaten him to this location and as he creeps up to the warehouse and peers through the window, he sees Dinah. And this is such a graphic and upsetting splash page. She is bound. She is stripped almost nude. She is bleeding from head to toe. It's so horrifying. And when he kicks down the door and he reacts he fires an arrow into her captor's chest, 
killing his first man in Seattle. Green Arrow is horrified and frantic, and he just broke one of his commandments. He said he was never going to kill again, but he's shot this guy clear through. And in his frantic state, he fails to notice a second man bursting in from another room. And luckily, Shadow is there, and she shoots this guy through the eye. It's so graphic. It's a total bloodbath. And when Green Arrow finally stumbles out of the building that is now entirely on fire, on fire uh, he's afraid that Dinah is dead. But when she comes to consciousness, she says, Oliver, sorry I missed your birthday. <sighs> to me, this indicates that the entire time she's doing her investigation, she's getting caught, she's being tortured, she's carrying in the back of her mind this <laughs> guilt yeah. of not behaving in the way she knows Oliver wants her to behave. In this moment, it's it, it overshadows everything going on in the comic. And the third issue opens with them replaying Dinah's kidnapping and torture. And it spills into this nightmare scenario with dragons and fire and blood. And what we're seeing here is very much uh, exploitative. It's gross. It's disgusting. It is like a Roger Corman movie. This is Grindhouse Comics. And it is deeply upsetting and it propels... Oliver down this path of darkness that he won't really come out of, I'm guessing, through Mike Grell's entire 80-issue Green Arrow run. Green Arrow is next to her bedside in full regalia. Right. So Cameron shows up and goes like, who is this woman? You know who she is. And he goes like, I have no idea. Yeah, so I can't at tell. this point, <laughs> she is a Jane Doe and... The lieutenant is like, well, that's trash because, like, you wouldn't be by her bedside, like, rending your garments over just a stranger. Lieutenant Cameron actually produces three arrowheads from the scene that seem to have come from two different arrows. So Lieutenant Cameron thinks that or knows that he's involved. And that little confrontation with the lieutenant is enough to get him out of the hospital and back into investigating who Shadow is. And over the course of the third issue, we learn that Shadow's parents, her father, took some money from the Yakuza, came to America to start a business empire, was placed in an internment camp, uh, the whole family was, and then this CIA guy tortures him and his wife and steals his money and Shadow is killing all these suits because they did this tremendous wrong to her family. And those happen to be the same guys who are running all of this cocaine that Dino was investigating and they also hired Budry, who was the Seattle slasher and all of these things are now interconnected and intertwined. And Green Arrow has inserted himself into the middle of all of this. And so he's going to bust one of their exchanges, their cash for drugs exchanges on the Canadian border. And he was told this location by Shadow. It's an invite. It's a team up. 
Yeah, because he's been getting in her way generally. So she's like, okay, well, I'm going to invite you to my next hit so I know where you are. <laughs> right. So she's like, you can just watch me get my last hit and then you can also get your vengeance for them torturing your lady. And he more momentarily has a conflict. Like, I can't just watch you murder a guy. She's like, well, we both hate this guy. And he's like, okay. So this comes to pass. And now he wants to stop the actual crime from happening. But then uh, the guy who was going to pay Magnor for moving all of this cocaine goes like, hey, Green Arrow, all of this money has been purposefully laundered. It's untraceable. So how about you let me go and I'll let you keep this cash? And Green Arrow is like, Sure. This blows my mind. Like when I got to the ending of it, like of all the weird and troubling morality in this comic book, when he takes the cash, when he takes the payout from the CIA and brings it to Dinah's bedside, and the final scene of this comic is him going like, look, I got a raise. Uh, what? Yeah, and Dinah, she's just come out of a coma <laughs> and she's like, I need vengeance. I'm going to get those guys. And like, Greedo was like, it's okay. I took care of all of it. Look at this money I have. Yeah, he robbed her of her vengeance. And if you have issues with how Dinah's story is developed or wrapped up or sidelined or fridged in the Longbow Hunters, I would like to recommend to you the Birds of Prey run written by Gail Simone. The very first arc uh, deals with this moment uh, in a very, um, what's the word I want to use? It's clever, but compassionate. It deals with it in a very compassionate way. Uh, shout out to Andy W., uh, one of our listeners in our Slack channel, recommending uh, the Birds of Prey run from Gail Simone because that that series made me a little more comfortable with how the Longbow Hunters wraps up. It is worth noting in the final scene that Dinah volunteers in that moment uh, from her hospital bed to have a talk about their relationship and going like, you know, maybe someday there is a possibility for creating this family you were talking about. And Oliver Queen goes like, you know, you you were actually right. I really wasn't, I didn't realize until you were hurt, like that maybe having a family, like a, a traditional family is not possible for us. And Dinah goes like, I think I kind of blamed you for not being able to have a yeah. family, which I feel like kind of twists what the original it, conversation yeah, was about. It lets Ollie off the hook. This final page lets him off the hook big time. But yeah, like she's like, well, it's just the kind of world we live in where there's this violence. So like, I guess nobody should have kids. I don't know what her point is. When I guess, you know, sometimes in a big fight, in a, even if there is a one person that's wrong, it's like, well, you apologize for something, so I apologize for she something. She is laying at a bridge to reconnect with Ollie from her hospital bed, and that is incredible of her. Yeah, it's very generous. It's a very generous move. But Oliver says, like, I should have been grateful for what we have. And, yeah. you know, maybe someday. And Di Dinah goes, like, maybe. 
I love you very much, Oliver. And if I ever decide to hang up the hero business and Oliver Queen goes like, hey, don't knock the hero business. I got a hell of a raise right. today. Right. And this gritty, realistic, violent, rated, hard PG-13 comic. It's R. It's a hard R. But there's no nipples. No we had the nipples. whole conversation about no the nipples. No nipples, but the violence is R. That arrow went right through that dude's socket, Lisa. Yeah, so this completely dark comic Ends on a laugh, like a sitcom. Yeah, I mean, it is a weird book. A weird book that's trying to completely cancel out and obliterate a character's past. It's doing a course correction that I would argue is for for something that is not broken. Yeah, and, you know, they are, part of that erasure is erasing the relationship of Ollie and Dinah. And that's what Grell continues to do throughout his series. And when you get done with this comic, I like, even though the final moment in the hospital bed, there still is love there and connection and wanting to be together. When you get done reading the entire three issues, you see these two people drifting apart. They want different things. They are different people. They're not really compatible in this moment. Back in the first issue, just moments before the cracked out teenager burst through the window, Dinah was trying to have a conversation about what their move to Seattle was supposed to be about. Yeah. It was supposed to be a new beginning, a hard reset on what being vigilantes and what being in a relationship was supposed to mean. But from the way I read these three issues, Oliver was actually trying to create a create distance between them going like we can be family people and I can continue to be the green arrow. But what we have to do is compartmentalize our lives. Yeah. I like, I feel like Oliver is in crisis. Um, and until he understands who he is and what he wants and recognizes what it will take to have those things. You can't just say like, I want to have kids with you, Dinah, especially when you're going out of your way to divide your house between his and her. Okay. So he says he wants one thing, but he's not behaving like he wants that thing. He's not recognizing his partner as an equal. He's not even considering her wants. Because they have different values. And, you know, we can have different values. People can have different values, but you can't have wildly different values. Not all of your values can't be in opposition to each other. So they do share a few things. Clearly, as vigilantes, they share a point of view on the justice system in this country and how they can make this world a better place. But I think really that is all they share in common. For me, it goes back to that Esther Perel quote, where it's like, it's important to be individuals. It's important to have your own needs and wants, but there does have to be a bridge in between you of a shared foundation from which you can gain a new perspective. And I think that 
even Dinah is participating in trying to keep their perspectives separate. Like, yeah, they're both vigilantes, but Oliver is going to do it his way and I'm going to do it my way. And as long as our lives don't become any more intertwined by, say, creating a marriage and creating a family together, we can keep this status quo of us both doing our thing in a very different way. So if you look at the conversation about children and how it appears twice in this book, in the first issue and in the final scene of the third issue, both of those conversations are not allowed to develop. Uh, the first time they have it, they drift off to sleep and then all this madness occurs. And then the second time they have it in the hospital bed, he interrupts it with a laugh and on a laugh with the bag of cash. And I think that is a conversation, that is a value conversation that needs a whole issue unto itself to explore. Like when something like that occurs in your relationship, you have to discuss it to its conclusion. And when you reach that conclusion, you both have to be satisfied with how it ends. Because if you don't, it will continue to bubble up until it breaks you. I think the reason they don't have that conversation to its conclusion as I think the conclusion is an in inevitable separation. Yeah. And I think that both of them are scared of who they might be without the other person. Yeah. Like they've never really, they, they've spent their entire adulthood together in this shape. Man, woman, will they, won't they? And I think that Oliver is realizing that this is not sustainable for him anymore. And Dinah is saying, well, the only way this relationship can work is if it's, if it's exactly as it is right now. Yeah, yeah. And so the breakup seems inevitable. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you have to spend some time apart to realize that maybe there is something more there that you didn't recognize the first time. I think when Dinah Lance came down from the bedroom dressed as Black Canary to get Oliver out of his mopey state, I think she was just trying to say like, our past was not time wasted. Like we had something valuable. We had a dynamic that we both enjoyed. And I think that they can both successfully move on from this relationship if that's what they want, knowing that their shared history was a beautiful thing. And just because a relationship doesn't end with happily ever after doesn't mean that it wasn't a worthwhile and successful endeavor. That's an absolute fact. Uh, but this is not our last episode on Green Arrow and Black Canary, and we will be revisiting them soon to see how they pull themselves out of this one. Before we end this session with Dinah and Ollie, let's take a moment of reflection to talk about, like, what have we learned here? Uh, you know, it's easy to see some of my behaviors in Ollie, uh, I think we see these behaviors in a lot of characters throughout our time discussing comic book couples. Uh, Ollie is writing a narrative and he's excluding Dinah's point of view uh, while he's doing it. And I think that is something that we all do from time to time. It's certainly something that I do 
where I go like, I know what I want. This is how we're going to do it. I'm going to plan it and strategize. And uh, I'll let Lisa know uh, once I'm done and I've got it all figured out. And whenever you do that, you realize, oh, right. Lisa has all these other different takes and points of view on this exact same subject matter. And because I didn't check in with her, I wrote this entire storyline, this entire future for us without realizing that she might see things a little differently. But I also see Dinah kind of kicking the can down the road when it comes to planning their future because she feels like this kind of conversation with Oliver is going to be hard to have. And the timing never seems quite perfect for her because she's always about to go, you know, break up a a cocaine ring or he is going to solve this slasher murder. And And that's something that I definitely do as well, that we all do kick the can down the road to stop ourselves from having a serious conversation, pressing pause. But like the status quo can only be maintained for so long. Human beings do need to evolve and change. And like a will they, won't they cannot be sustained forever. At some point you do say like, we're going to be in this relationship. We are like, if we don't actively take part in building our lives, it's going to build itself for you. So it is important to go like, what is it that we share? What is the foundation of this relationship so that we can both grow as individuals and as partners? And that's what Ollie is sort of doing. He's trying to take charge of building his own story, but he's not including Dinah in the construction. He's doing all the hammering, all the nailing. He needs to bring her in, give her a hard hat. And I find that incredibly relatable as an only child who sees it as like, "Uh, this is my job to shape my future. But now that I'm in a relationship with you, you have to shape that future with me. We have to do that together. So is that what you were relating to? Did you come to the same conclusions or did you find something else that you're pulling out of this conversation out of the longbow hunters, out of Dinah and Ollie at this point in time differently? I think that it is important when you're in a relationship to find those hot button issues, those things that you find triggering and not avoiding them, but exploring them deeper because on the other side of that tough conversation might actually be the next level in your relationship. Sometimes like those triggering hot button conversations are actually hard because they are the conversations that create the most work and create the most change. But that doesn't mean that it is necessarily negative or bad. I think one of the things that makes a great relationship is like actual curiosity about Mm. your partner's perspective and curiosity about what their values are and why. And sometimes you have to teach yourself that curiosity. It's a practice. Yeah, like I think that sometimes when when relationships have been happening for decades, perhaps you fall into like, oh, I know what Oliver is going to say about this or I know how Oliver feels about this. But that's actually never... True. Like every day, 
with your partner is a new day and a new perspective. And if you aren't fostering growth, the growth will happen without you when you're not looking. And I think that's a good place to press pause on Dinah and Ollie uh, for this episode and the Longbow Hunters. I do want to hear from you about your experience reading this comic. What were your takeaways? What did you love? What you wish was done a little differently? I want to hear it all. Uh, is the Longbow Hunters the Dark Knight Returns of Green Arrow? Is it a classic Green Arrow comic. Is this a comic that you would put into the hands of somebody that is curious about the character? Or is it just an ornery guy apologizing <laughs> for something that never hurt our feelings? I think that The Longbow Hunters is absolutely a critical piece of Green Arrow history, and you do need to read it to understand the evolution of this character. And I think it offers a lot in terms of Dinah and Ollie's relationship, which I think we proved on this episode. But it's also not the place that I would want to press pause on this relationship like we are doing. I certainly wouldn't put them in carbonite at this point in time. You want them to grow and develop from here. And thankfully they do. Ooh, that is quite a tease. But we are taking a little bit of a departure from Dinah and Ollie for a spell because next week we are uniting the seven. Yes, we're taking part in a podcast event along with the Oblivion Pod, the Short Box Pod, First Issue Club, the Wednesday Pull List, the FN Nerds Podcast, and Comic Book Keepers. Each one of our podcasts is celebrating a particular Justice League member, and we've been tasked with talking about Martian Manhunter, John Johns, and we are doing so through the Martian Manhunter Identity Maxi Series written by Steve Orlando and Riley Rosmo. And we were talking about the relationship that John Johns has with his dearly departed wife, Myra. But after that, we will get back with Dinah and Ollie, and we will cover Kevin Smith's classic quiver run. That's great, Brad, but I gotta go. I just got a major lead on the cocaine trade in the oh. Pacific Northwest. Oh, no. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Track Lisa. Let me know what she's up to. Uh, but if you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. 
Couples should focus on creating an inner life together, a culture rich with symbols and rituals, and an appreciation of your real.